as we come today to the 24th chapter of the book of Leviticus. The subject here seems very much out of place with what we've been looking at and what we're going to look at through the remainder of the book. The subject here is the lights of the lampstand, the bread on the table of showbread, and then the death penalty for the blasphemer. Now, believe me, that seems out of place. And the items in this chapter seem to be, frankly, rather disconnected. The oil for the lampstand and the bread for the table just do not seem to belong between the Feast of Tabernacles and the sabbatic year that's coming up in the next chapter. Nevertheless, I believe that this is the method of the Holy Spirit. Because on another occasion, as we'll see in Numbers, the eighth chapter, there are the instructions for lighting the lights. And a brief description are inserted about the gifts of the princes and the cleansing of the Levites. And the instructions there for lighting the lights. And a description of the manna. All is to be done in the light and leading of the Holy Spirit. And I think that you have that here, that before we look at the celebrations of the sabbatic and jubilee years, and we've just looked at the feasts, that we need to have it called to our attention that all must be performed in the light of the Holy Spirit and in the strength of the power of God. That's very important. Now, I think there's some very important practical implications here. The people were to furnish the oil for the lampstand and the fine flour for the bread on the table. You see, God made them participants in the provision and worship of the tabernacle. The importance of the lampstand cannot be overlooked. It was probably the most accurate and beautiful picture of Christ in all the tabernacle. Now, someone said to me, in fact, a very close friend some time ago when we were so far behind in getting material out to you people and acknowledging everything. In fact, our success was our failure. We never expected such a phenomenal response, and we kept thinking it had let up, and it didn't let up, and we had to take on new help. But I sent out an SOS from this area for volunteer help. And I had a friend that was very critical of me. He said, you sound like a cheapskate asking for volunteer help. Well, I said, probably I am. But I said, I've learned a long time ago that when you get people involved in God's work, and that's what he wants them to do. I don't want this radio program to be my program. I want it to be our program, getting the Word of God out. And we have a very wonderful company of friends right here in Southern California that all i got to do is just drop my hat and they'll come running to help us out. And it's wonderful to have friends like that. And I know a great many of you, when I mention anything special, why you have really come to the front. And I feel that those who love the Word of God, want to get the Word of God, we all should be involved in it. God said to his people, you bring in the flour, you bring in the oil for the lamp, you furnish these things. Now, God, by miracle, could have furnished the bread as he'd fed the 5,000. But he didn't do it that way here. And he doesn't do it that way for us today. He wants us involved in the Lord's service. 
And if you're in a good church, a good Bible church, you ought to get involved in helping the pastor. It's amazing today how many ways people could help in the church if they just would get involved. That's all they need to do is to keep your eyes open and notice something that you could do that maybe somebody else is doing. You could really do it better. And maybe that you see certain Christian workers doing something and you could help them. I remember when I was in school, I had a Boy Scout troop. And I want to tell you, I doubt whether those boys ever did a good deed. They almost put me in a hospital, but I had really had to sit on them. So a couple of men, they were in the church, came in one night, and they saw that I was really having a problem with those boys. And so they came to me afterwards and said, Would you mind if we came and helped you? And you know, it was wonderful what those men could do while I was trying to get through a little Bible study to these fellows each week. May I say to you, friends, that we need to get involved. And that's a marvelous message that is here. And you'll notice that Aaron here has the sole charge of the lamps. And don't miss that. That's important to see that because of the fact that the lamps are in the hands of our great high priest today. Remember he said that he's the light of the world. Now that he's gone, he says, ye are lights in the world. And in the book of Revelation, we find him in the midst of the lampstands, and he's trimming the wicks, too. He's doing that again today. Now, will you notice what we have here? And then we have this incident, by the way, that we're going to look at. First of all, we have the olive oil for the golden lampstand. I'm reading the first two verses. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. Again, you see the emphasis, the very first thing there, to bring the oil. And this gave each Israelite as well as the tribe of Levi an interest in the service of the tabernacle. The olive oil was to be pure, and it was free from leaves and all impurities. I can well understand that the man who brought the oil would have a real interest in the service of the tabernacle. And then we have in verses 3 and 4, "...without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever." In your generations he shall order the lamps upon the pure lampstand before the Lord continually. Two things. First thing to note is that the lamps were to be kept lighted continually while the tabernacle was set up. They didn't go through the wilderness holding the lampstand lighted. That's not the picture at all. But when they were camped and the tabernacle was set up, and Aaron alone controlled the use and the service of the lampstand. And we're told in Exodus 30, let me remind you of that again, "...and Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations." Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is today walking in the midst of the lampstand. He's our great high priest, and I think he trims them every now and then. He moves into our hearts and lives, and sometimes he has to snuff out a light that is 
burning, you know, giving off too much smog and smoke. And then we have now the fine flour for the table of showbread. That begins here at verse 5. And thou shalt take fine flour, bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenths deals shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now the fine flour was to be furnished by the people, as was the olive oil. And the oil speaks of the Holy Spirit, so the bread here speaks of Christ. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And the fine flour means wheat and frankincense as a gift from the people must necessarily be the natural gum because it had to be compounded into the incense, which was a secret formula, by the way. And this was put on there. It speaks of Christ as the bread of life, but it speaks of the wonderful fragrance of his humanity. And we are told in verses 8 and 9, "...every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. It shall be Aaron's and his sons. They shall eat it in the holy place." The bread would be in there on top of the table for one week. Then they would eat it. The bread was to be changed, you see, each Sabbath. And the old bread was to be eaten by Aaron and his sons, and always in the holy place. We find that Ahimelech violated the law when he gave the showbread to David and his men. And our Lord called attention to that, by the way, as a justification for his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath day. Now, the bread speaks of Christ as the light speaks of Christ. He is the light of the world, and he is the bread of life. And that is essential today for any service that we do for him. must be done in the light of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we must feed on him if we're to serve him. Now, the death penalty is here for the sin of blasphemy. And we have an incident here that is quite interesting because in the book of Leviticus, there are only two incidents, two episodes recorded. One was the one of Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus 10. We've already looked at that. And why is this second one given to us? Well, it seems entirely out of keeping with the instructions given here, but we need to recognize the fact that God is teaching a great lesson concerning blasphemy. Then this boy, and I think I should read this. Let me read verses 10 and 12. And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses, and his mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. Now, will you notice this? Who was this boy that did this? 
Well, we're told he's the son of an Israelitish mother and an Egyptian father. And he's the one that did the blaspheming. That tells us something. We're going to find out later on that that mixed multitude, which we saw back in Exodus 12:38, we are told then, and a mixed multitude went up also with them and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. Now, the mixed multitude is the one that actually started all the trouble in the camp. They began to murmur, and they caused strife, and it began with that group over numbers. And we'll see this later. I'll read this, though. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, you see, they were problem children. They were troublemakers. And what is the explanation? Well, I think the explanation is quite simple. Here was this boy. He had an Egyptian father. He had an Israelitish mother. Now, there came a day when the children of Israel were to leave the land of Egypt, and they are to go out and into the promised land. The Egyptian father's not going. The Israelitish mother's going. That's a separation right there. And you can see now one of the reasons that God tells his people, both then and now, there should not be intermarriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Don't misunderstand me. There are a lot of people going to raise a hundred questions about whether this one should marry that one. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about a believer, and an unbeliever hasn't anything in the world to do with race. But it's wrong for a believer to marry an unbeliever. And I don't care about color skin. They both could be the same color, could be as white as snow or as black as ink. Wouldn't make any difference if both of them were the same color. If one's a believer, the other an unbeliever, it's wrong. It's wrong. God says it's wrong. I don't say it's wrong. I'd never know it was wrong if he hadn't said it. Now, the thing that happened was this. When the children of Israel went out, that boy who's a half-breed's got a problem. Is he going to stay with Papa or is he going with Mama? Now, some stayed with Papa. I'm not sure, but what? Maybe there were a couple more boys in this family. They stayed back with their dad. This boy went along. And the one that went along and the one that stayed would always have a problem. Well, I wonder if I should have done the other thing. And this mixed multitude, you can see when they came out of Egypt, they had a question to begin with whether they should even leave Egypt. They didn't want to leave Egypt. Now that they left Egypt, they get out in the wilderness and the going gets rough. What do they do? They begin to complain. They'd be the first ones to complain. Now, friends, we have those in the church. We have unsaved people in the church. They've got one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And they're the ones you have trouble with today. I've been in the church a long time. I'm not in it anymore, so I can, I guess, speak rather freely. And that is that there are a lot of troublemakers today. And my experience has been that there's always a question about the salvation of a troublemaker. Always. I've never quite understood men that would block the giving out of the Word of God. You may or may not be surprised to hear that the greatest opposition I had in this radio program never came from the outside. It never came from unbelievers. But you know that I had certain, well, let me call them church members, that tried to wreck this radio program. 
I'm amazed at that. I never was so shocked at anything in my life. You would think that they would at least come and pat you on the back and say, Brother, God bless you. I hope that you can get the Word of God out. Now, they wouldn't have any part in it. I know that. But the point is, you would think that at least be forgetting the Word of God out. This boy, he was a mess, by the way. And he's the one that's going to cause the trouble, you see. Now, he got in a fight. And you can understand how that would come about. And after he got in the fight, why, he blasphemed the name of God. And that is something we need to understand God takes note of today. This seems to be something that's pretty serious to God, to blaspheme his name. Now, he blasphemed the name of the Lord and he cursed the name that was sacred in Israel. There's a question today how you pronounce it. Is it Yahweh or Jehovah? I personally don't know. It was holy, so holy that they didn't pronounce it. But this blasphemer, he could pronounce it. I heard a man the other day in a luncheon in a private club where I was invited by one of the members for lunch. And a man at a table next to us, he used the name of God more than I've ever used it in any sermon. I told that to a friend of mine. He sure is using the name of God. But he doesn't use it like I use it in a sermon. He was blaspheming. Now, will you notice what God says? And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. Now, God handed down his verdict of guilty, and the penalty is death by stoning. The seriousness of the crime is measured by the penalty which God inflicted. And all that heard the blasphemy had to put their hands on the head, denoting a placing of guilt solely on the young man. The death penalty is established for blaspheming God's name, for both an Israelite and a stranger. Now, verse 17 through 22, And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. That's a very interesting thing. This soft notion of running around and saying, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Why don't you look at it? The penalty for killing was right here. He that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. I haven't seen that on any protester's banner yet. And that's as much a part of the word of God as thou shalt not kill. He makes it very clear. And it's established that the law of what is known lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This was the penalty that was inflicted literally. You see, one law would apply to both Israelite and stranger, and it established the death penalty for murder. And my friend, I don't think that's been changed, by the way. Now notice verse 23. And Moses spoke to the children of Israel that they should bring forth him that had cursed out of the camp and stone him with stones. And the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, there's a great moral lesson here. 
The name of our God is sacred and must be protected. Blasphemy is a crime of the deepest hue. You see, all human life is sacred, must be protected. God provides also for the protection of personal property, as this section here reveals. Now, God is righteous in all his dealings. We too are guilty before God, but Christ has borne our sentence of death. Now, my friend, there are those today that say, oh, we should repeal the death penalty. Let me say this, God has not repealed it. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, unless we can say, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and with his stripes we're healed. Heal of that awful thing that's known as sin. Now we've come in chapter 25 to the laws relating to the promised land, the sabbatic year, the year of jubilee, and the redemption of property and person. This is a very interesting chapter in many ways and throws added light on a phase and feature of the law and of the land that we'd not get anywhere else. You see, not only was the Mosaic economy directed to the people of Israel, but it also pertained particularly to the land of Palestine. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. A great many people talk about, well, the Mosaic law was given to the nation Israel. Fine. But it was also geared to that land. And I think you'll find that emphasized in this chapter. The laws given here could not be enforced until Israel entered the land of Canaan, and they could not possibly be adapted to the wilderness. And, well, it wouldn't fit into California, I don't believe, and they don't fit into other areas of our nation. Now you'll notice that God says here, and watch for it to occur, when ye come into the land, rest under the land, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land. And you will find out that that occurs ten times in this chapter, which means it's pretty important. And the words that are on the liberty bell are found in this chapter here. And you look for them. It's difficult, by the way, to read Leviticus as well as the entire Bible without noticing the recurrence of the number seven. The number seven is not a perfect number, as some like to think of it. Some think it denotes perfection. I think that there is a distinction there that may not be a difference, but it needs to be made. It is a number that denotes completeness, not always perfection. There is a definite connection, I think, of this in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Revelation. And both of these books use it in a structural way, as we've seen. The recurrence of it, the seventh day, the seventh week, the seventh month, the seventh year, and the seventh, seventh year, which would be the sabbatic year, and so on. So we have, first of all, the sabbatic year here. And will you notice there is a scale that, in fact, I've made a series of circles where you have the Sabbath day, the seventh week, the seventh month, the seventh year, and the seventh sabbatic year. And that would be the year of Jubilee. All of that all goes together in one package. I have it in my second volume on Leviticus, which, by the way, we're 
probably should begin to talk about now as we're about to complete the book of Leviticus. Now, let me read it, verse 1 and 2 here of the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, and we go back now to Mount Sinai. Why? Well, you couldn't put this into effect in Mount Sinai. It's to be in effect when they get in the land. Verse 2, "...speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord." Now, this is amazing. Here is a Sabbath for the land as well as for man. The seventh day is for man, and the seventh year is for the land. That's interesting. And rest in these verses means literally keeping of a Sabbath, by the way, where in Hebrews God says in chapter 4, verse 9, "...there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest." And that means into the keeping of a Sabbath. What kind of Sabbath? This is redemption rest. Hasn't anything in the world to do with the day here. He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, we come here to the fact that letting the land lie fallow every seventh year did the land good, and it also was good for the vineyards to do that. And God required that they lie fallow. And notice how he did it. Verses 3 and 4, "...six years thou shalt sow thy field, six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard. Gather in the fruit thereof, but in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest under the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard." Now, this matter of letting the land lie fallow is something that my Southland learned to its sorrow. is a pretty good business. A great deal of the land in the South for years was planted with cotton every year, year after year, year after year. And what happened? The land was worn out. And a great deal of that land, they do not believe that it can ever be restored. Well, I think it could. I'm no authority, of course. But I think in time, of course, it would be restored. But the important thing is you wear it out. This was a good agricultural move that God suggested to him. It's quite interesting that God would know all about farming, isn't it? But he seems to have known all about farming. And the sabbatic year now is related, as he makes it clear here, to the land. It couldn't be observed any other place but to the land. Now we find in verses 5 and 7 here, "...that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vineyard undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, for thy maid, for thy hired servant, for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle and for the beasts that are in thy land." shall all the increase thereof be meat. Now, this is an interesting thing that God did. This shows how the physical needs of the people were supplied 
during the sabbatic year. The land was so productive that it was not necessary to plant it. We're told that down in the Euphrates Valley in the days of Abraham, it wasn't necessary to plant grain at all. The grain grew without planting. And the ground in Israel produced enough to supply the needs of the owner, his servants, and the stranger. And God would permit, by the way, the poor people to come in during this period and they could get what they wanted to eat. I don't think they were permitted to get any more than that, but they were permitted to get enough to eat. This is a very remarkable way God had of taking care of the poor people. So in the sabbatic year, the man, all he could get was just what he needed to eat. He couldn't use it to market it. This is the year that he's going to feed his family, feed his servants, and the stranger and the poor people could come in and get theirs. I remember that when I was a pastor of a church in Pasadena, I had a very fine neighbor. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he owned a great vineyard over in La Cunada. Now, you couldn't put a vineyard over there today because of the subdivisions that had been put there. But in that day, there were quite a few vineyards up there. And believe me, he had a good one. They grew these fine concord grapes up there, and there are not too many of them grown in California. And he was a very generous man, a good neighbor, and he'd always bring me a basket or two during the season. And being a Seventh-day Adventist, he had to sort of goad me from time to time. And one day he went after me in earnest. He said to me, why don't you keep the Sabbath day? And I explained to him that I did. But I kept the Sabbath day every day. He said, what day do you keep? And I said, Saturday. And he looked at me in amazement, but I didn't stop there. I said, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I said, I start all over again. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, Sabbath today means rest, means redemption rest. You cease from your works and you trust Christ. Well, he didn't want it that way. And he said, I think you ought to keep the Sabbath day, just like they did in Israel. Well, I said, are you keeping the Mosaic law? And he assured me he was. And then I gave him this 25th chapter, Leviticus. I told him, I said, in connection with the sabbatic day, there was a sabbatic year. Every seven years was a sabbatic year, and the land would lie fallow. If a man had a vineyard, he is to let the poor people in. Now, I said, you told me that you keep the Mosaic law. And you tell me you keep the Sabbath day and you think I should keep it. Now, I said, in connection with the Sabbath day, there is a sabbatic year. That year, the poor people can go in and get grapes in the vineyard. Now, I said, you let me know when you're going to observe the sabbatic year and I'll get my basket and come into your vineyard and glean grapes. Because I said, very frankly, I'm among the poor people, and I'd like to come in and get my grapes that year. He said, you better not come in there without my permission. Well, may I say to you, you're not keeping in the Mosaic law. He was keeping a third of it, because not only did that belong to it, but also a year of Jubilee belonged to it. And this was God's way, you see, of telling his people that there was a curse on the land and that he never permitted any one of them to hog the land and not let the poor people be taken care of. God was thinking of the land and the poor people at the same time. 
a curse had been put upon the ground. God told Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And it also speaks of a day that's coming in the future when the curse will be removed. And Isaiah, and Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. You see, all of this had a great spiritual message for the people. And it gave the ground opportunity to re-enrich itself because all of the sustenance was being taken out. This was God's method because the land has never so far been able to support mankind on this earth. And today, the fear of a population explosion. Now, when the curse is removed, my friends, this ground will produce in a way it's never produced before since the fall of man. Now, after the sabbatic year, there comes another series of sevens. And that series of sevens, you have to go seven sabbatic years. That means every seven years of the sabbatic year. So seven times seven will put you up 49 years. Now, the year after the sabbatic year was the year of Jubilee. And what happened? Verse 8, Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. And the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Now, the year of Jubilee was a continuing of the number seven, you see, to the ever-ascending scale of the calendar. It was the largest unit of time, 50 years. You know, today they make a great many of these leases, 50-year lease or a 99-year lease. That is the way that it's done. Well, God worked on that basis also. Seven sabbatic years were numbered, which were 49 years. Then the following year, always the 50th, it was set aside as the year of Jubilee. Now, actually, there were really two years of jubilee in every century. Now, will you notice verse 9? What was the purpose? Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. Now, why the day of atonement? This actually was the crowning point and period of the entire sabbatical structure of the nation. It was the Shinath Hayobal, the year of Jubilee. And it was in many respects the most anticipated and joyful period of the Mosaic economy. The Karen Hayobal meant the horn of a ram, and in time the Yobel came to mean trumpet. It's translated 21 times as jubilee, five times as a ram's horn, and once as a trumpet. After Israel was settled in the land, it's difficult to see how one blast of the trumpet or cornet could be heard from Dan to Beersheba. And I think it's reasonable to conclude 
that in every populated area there was the simultaneous blowing of the ram's horns to usher in the year of Jubilee. I think it would begin at the temple or at the tabernacle, and then there'd be one station far enough away to hear it, and then it would be passed on and on out to the very end of the land. Now, verse 10, "...ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, proclaim liberty throughout all the land." unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. Ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Now, the thing that happened was this, that you could, in that day, mortgage your land. But in the year of jubilee, why, that land would return back to the original owner. That was the way that God protected the land from ever getting away from the original owner. You could not permanently, if a man mortgaged his land to you, you couldn't permanently take it away from him. Now, you could take it away from him for a period of almost 50 years. But when that jubilee year came, it went right back to him or to his descendants. God protected that. Now, suppose a man sold himself into slavery in the year of jubilee, when that trumpet is sounded, he's free. The shackles are broken. And we are told today to use the same method, to sound the trumpet. Do you know that's what the word proclaim or to herald is in the New Testament? It's the word caruso, and it means a trumpet. Listen to Paul. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you being then made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans six seventeen and 18, and then 23. And listen again. John in 1 John five nineteen says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the arms of the wicked one is the way it should be translated. Listen again. The Lord Jesus Christ said, "...ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." And again he said, "...if the Son therefore make you free, ye shall be free indeed." The year of Jubilee, everything went free. All mortgages are canceled. And when you come to Jesus Christ, my friend, the sin question is settled. He paid the penalty. It's all settled. And you go free. He makes you free. And again, in Romans six twenty-two, Paul says, "...but now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life." Romans six twenty-two, Romans eight twenty-one says, "...because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God." There is coming a great jubilee, you see, for the wonderful, wonderful plan and program of God. And you remember yonder when our Lord went into the synagogue in Nazareth. You remember he read in that passage in Isaiah, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to herald it, to trumpet it. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted." to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable. That's the year of jubilee of the Lord. My, what a wonderful 
picture that we have here. And there's so much of Scripture that we have on this. And we're told in verses 11 and 12, "...a jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vineyard." For it's the jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. What a wonderful plan and program that was for God, you see, to provide for his people. Then you have the redemption of property. I'll go into that in detail in the book of Ruth when we get there. But notice verses 25. If thy brother be waxen poor, hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. You see, this is the law of the kinsman redeemer. When a man has lost his property, why, say he does it two years after Jubilee, he'd have to wait 48 more years. Well, it's a long time to wait. If he's got a rich relative, why, that rich relative could redeem him. It'd be wonderful to see that rich uncle of his coming down the highway, taking his checkbook out of his pocket to pay off the mortgage, and he could do it. Now, if a man sold himself into slavery, not only do you have the redemption of property, you have the redemption of persons. And in verse 35, "...and if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger sojourner, that ye may live with thee." And then, and if thy brother has sold himself, why, in the year of Jubilee, he'd be set free. But, of course, suppose that he sold himself to a stranger. What then? Well, this man can come, this rich uncle we told you about can come and redeem his person, redeem the property and the person. You and I have a rich kinsman redeemer. He was rich. He became poor, though, because... He shed his precious blood that you and I might be redeemed persons and that he's going to redeem this earth someday. He's already paid the price for it and it's going to be delivered to him someday. It belongs to him. What a marvelous, marvelous truth we have in this chapter. We leave off there today and we go to the 26th chapter next time. Now, friends, as we come to this 26th chapter of Leviticus, it's a very marvelous chapter. It's the conditions on which Israel occupies and enjoys the land of Israel. It's actually a prophetic history. It covers their entire tenure of that land until the present hour and conditions the future on which they will occupy it. Now, this section, I think, stands in a rather peculiar relationship to the remainder of the book of Leviticus. There are no great spiritual lessons and pictures here, but this is the direct word of Jehovah to the nation Israel concerning their future. And this is history pre-written. It reveals the basis on which Israel entered the land of Canaan and their tenancy there. It's an iffy chapter. If occurs nine times, and it has to do with the condition on which they occupy the land. God says, I will, 24 times. And God will act and react according to the response to the if. You see, he gave them the land, but their occupancy of it is determined upon their 
answer to the if. And today, you and I are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. But may I say there are few ifs connected to that, by the way. God loves us, but you can put up an umbrella of indifference. You can put up an umbrella of sin. You can put up an umbrella of stepping out of the will of God. And the sunshine of the love of God won't get on you. You got to put on your umbrella. Got to remove these things. If, if, if. Now, will you notice? We have first the prologue to Israel's Magna Charter of the land, the first two verses, then the promise of blessing, then the pronouncement of judgment, and then the prediction predicted on promise to the patriarchs. Now, will you notice? Verses 1 and 2, "...ye shall make you no idols, nor graven images, neither rear you a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. For I am the Lord your God, ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary." Why? I am the Lord, God says. Now, these two verses, Dr. Lang would put them with that last chapter. I think they belong here. And apparently those who made the chapter divisions thought so also. These are essential for Israel to maintain residence in the land. And he puts down three injunctions here that they must meet if they're to occupy that land. Now, it's given to them. But again, their enjoyment of it, their occupation of it, depends upon their obedience to God. Number one, they're to make no idols. Number two, they're to keep the Sabbaths. Number three, they're to reverence the sanctuary. And the word here for idols is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it means nothings, nothings. You shall make you no nothings. Well, it's mighty hard to make a nothing, friends. However, a great many folk make a nothing of their relationship to God, by the way, a nothing. A nothing. Paul says, you remember, an idol is nothing. And that's what it is. Anything that takes the place of God is a nothing. Now, the word for graven images means a carved wooden image. And the word for image of stone means sculptured stone idols. You see that people were not to worship an image, nor even worship before an image. You find that this has been given before, back in 19. The character of Jehovah is the basis for obeying these injunctions. The Sabbath, the sanctuary, and this matter of worshiping God all come in one package. Why? Because he says, I am the Lord. Now, notice this promise of blessing. Again, we have an if. If ye walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments, and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely, and I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid." And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. Now, it rested upon if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. That's the if. And then God promised these things. 
Their occupancy of the land is contingent upon their obedience, you see, to God's revealed will to them. And at the same time, God recognizes their free will. This is a big if, if you'll do it. Then God says, I will bless you. And I think the important thing was they'd be given rain. And you'll find that all the way through the prophets. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34:26, And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. I'll cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, this is God's promise to them in their occupation of that land. Showers will come upon them. Fruitful harvest. They'll have peace. And by the way, it's interesting today, that little nation can't have peace. And no use for us to point our finger at them, we can't either. And it's all tied up probably in this little matter, little matter of a little word that is if, I-F, if. God has promised to bless if certain things are done. And then Amos says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Amos 9:13. He's looking now toward that day that is yet to come. Joel mentioned it. Now in verses 7 and 8, "...and ye shall chase your enemies. They shall fall before you by the sword, and five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword." Now, that was literally fulfilled, as you know. At the time that they would return to God, God would raise up a Deborah or a Gideon, or he would raise up a Samuel or a David, or in later days, an Elijah. These all were raised up because God was making good his promise. They'll be victorious over their enemies as part of their blessing. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you as he hath promised. That's Joshua 23.10. And you'll find that that was true in their history. Now in verses 9 and 10, God says, For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you, and ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. Population explosion in Israel would be part of the blessing. And today, the world doesn't think that's a blessing at all. The foodstuffs would have to be multiplied in that day, and God said it would be. Now, verse 11, "...and I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you." Don't tell me God doesn't abhor sin. Of course he does. He won't compromise with it in your life or my life either. Now, the tabernacle in their midst was an evident token of blessing. And this is the great hope of the future, which will be finally fulfilled for the eternal earth. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, 
and be their God. That's Revelation 21, 3. Then in verse 12, I read, "...and I will walk among you and be your God, and ye shall be my people." God promises you seed of fellowship with those who obey him. That's what he tells us today. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That is with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And he says that he wants to have fellowship with us. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, walk in them, be their God, and they shall be my people. Second Corinthians 6.16 now notice verse 13, "...I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen, and I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you go upright." The future promise of blessing rests upon the solid history of the past when God delivered them from Egypt, you see. He said, "...now I have done this for you. Don't you know I will do it for you in the future?" That's what he tells us today, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, has God blessed you, friend, and brought you up to this moment? Why do you think he's going to let you down? Well, you can be confident of this very thing, that he that hath brought you up to this very moment, why, he's going to lead you right through to the day of Jesus Christ. And I say, hallelujah. And I hope you don't think I'm being too exuberant when I say that, but that's a wonderful thing. Now, he goes on here in verse 14 and 15 with a pronouncement of judgment. Now, listen to him here. We have another if. But if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if ye shall despise my statutes, or if... Your soul abhor my judgment, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant. If occurs three times in these two verses, by the way. And this is the breach of the covenant. The refusal to hear, refusal to do. They despise, they abhor, and God therefore put them out of the land. Listen to him. Verse 16 and 17, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning ag, that shall consume the eyes, cause sorrow of heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. Read the days when God raised up Gideon, and the days of Saul, and the days later on of the kings. The anger of the Lord, we're told, waxed hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoil them. That's in Judges 2.14. And you'll find again that Jeremiah spoke of the coming captivity. They shall eat up thine harvest, thy bread. Micah spoke of that day. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. You see, all of the prophets were doing was just calling their attention to the fact they had broken the covenant God had made with them. Now, verse 18 and 20. And if ye will not, yet for all this hearken unto me, then I'll punish you seven times more for your sins. I'll break the pride of your power. 
I'll make your heaven as iron, your earth as brass, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield or increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. Now, this is a second-degree judgment, by the way. If they were obdurate and they continually disobeyed God, he'll punish them seven times. And that means a complete and absolute judgment. Their pride will be broken. There'll be no rain. There'll be continual crop failure. Now, verses 21 and 22, "...and if ye walk contrary unto me, will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. I'll also send wild beasts among you, rob your children, destroy your cattle, make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate." Read the time of the days of the judges. All of this came upon them. Verses 23 and 26, "...and if ye will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you." Boy, I tell you, God puts it on the line, doesn't he? "...and I'll punish you yet seven times." A complete judgment. "...I'll bring a sword upon you, and shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant." And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I'll send the pestilence upon you, and ye shall be delivered, and so on. When I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and ye shall eat and not be satisfied. This is the fourth degree judgment. This is the time of the captivity, when a third part, Ezekiel said to them, they'd die in the pestilence, and they did. And famine would overtake them. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all mention that, and it all happened to them. And this is the thing that will take place again at the time of the Great Tribulation, as we have in the sixth chapter of Revelation. Now, verses 27, And if ye will not, for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you, also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Another complete judgment, you see. Ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. Now, that seems harsh, friends, and seems it could never come to pass, however it did. And I will destroy your high places, cut down your images, cast your carcasses from the carcass of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste, and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation, and I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors, and I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it, and I will scatter you among the heathen, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Now, this is fifth-degree judgment. And this judgment is extreme. And it was a result of the warfare in the siege of the cities. It was fulfilled in the siege of Samaria, as recorded in Second Kings, and again in the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and later on when Titus the Roman attacked. Jerusalem. You see, God made good what he said he'd do. And that land over there today, I think, stands exactly as God said it would after all these years. Now, in verses 34 and 35, "...then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths, as long as it lieth desolate. 
and ye be in your enemies' lands, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when ye dwelt upon it. Now, why did they go into Babylonian captivity 70 years? Well, the 70 years correspond to the 70 broken sabbatic years. That's in Second Chronicles 36, 21. In other words, for 490 years, 70 Sabbath years, which comes every seven years, that's seven times 70, 490 years went by, and you know what? They thought they got by with it. And finally, God says, well, I said that the land would have to enjoy its Sabbaths. He put them out of the land for 70 years. What an accurate portrayal that God has given And if you read the next few verses, and I'm not going to take time now to read them, you have a prophetic portrayal of the nation Israel in the days of the Babylonian captivity. This is a picture that was actually fulfilled. Also, you find a striking picture of the Nazi anti-Semitic movement in this section here. You see, this book of Leviticus is really up to date. Now, there is a prediction here that's predicated on promise to the patriarchs, verses 40 and 42. It never did destroy the fact they have the title deeds to that land. Listen to this. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespass against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember, and I will remember the land. Now, friends, this is a remarkable prophecy. And this is a prophecy that God said that he would honor when the time came. And you find out they were carried away into captivity. And the thing that happened, for instance, they were down in the land of Egypt, and God heard their groaning. God remembered he'd made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And then he put them in the land. And he said, now, if you obey me, why, I'll keep you here. If not, the generation that's living will have to leave the land. But I'll bring them back. Because God says, if they remember me in the land where they go, and that's down yonder in the land of Babylon, there's a a young man by the name of Daniel. And for 70 years he prophesied there, And then he turned to God in prayer. And you know what he did? He turned his face toward that city, and he began to confess his sin and the sins of his people. And when he did, God heard. God sent a messenger to him and said, they're going to return back to the land. And they did return back to the land just exactly like God said they would. Friends, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Now let me read verses 43 and 45. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them, and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity. 
because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statute. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God." Now, are you going to try to tell me today that God is through with the nation Israel? Then read this through again and tell me whether you believe God means what he says. God says he's not through with them at all. God says that he'll make a new covenant with them in the day that he brings them back into that land. This, my friend, is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Now, verse 46, the last verse. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now, we've come to the end of him giving these laws that we have here in Leviticus. And God confirms the Pentateuch here as he's given it to Moses. In fact, it moves us all the way back into the book of Exodus. And this verse seems to end the book of Leviticus, but it doesn't. God also looks down through the ages to their repeated failures and his faithfulness and final victory. Moses could not bring them eternal blessings, although he was a mediator. The world must look to another. John gives the answer, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 27 of the book of Leviticus has as its theme dedication and devotion concerning vows. And immediately when you begin to get into this chapter, why you wonder why it is here. fact of the matter is, it appears to be an addendum or a postscript to the book of Leviticus. And most expositors note this, and some actually consider it a major problem of the book. Sites, he doesn't even consider it, because after chapter 25th, he doesn't give any exposition of Leviticus at all. Lange treats this chapter as an appendix. Now, I think that the matter seems to be extraneous and unrelated to the contents of the book, but there's no reason to make a mountain out of a molehill. I think that here we see a very definite purpose in placing this chapter last. And I think that there have been those like Dr. Kellogg with real spiritual perception. They note that all which has preceded this chapter is obligatory, while here all is voluntary. Actually, this makes a beautiful, I think, and fitting climax to the book of worship. And John, for instance, chapter 21 follows John chapter 20 in very much the same fashion. John 20 is his appearances, you remember? And then John 21, why, and he gives them that command in 20. You're to go into the world and preach the gospel. But wait a minute here. He says to Simon Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Voluntary, if you please. You find that's God's method all the way through. Now, the striking feature about the vows in this chapter is they are voluntary. But after you've made a vow, God holds you to it. That's the thing that's important to note here, that it's the response of a grateful heart to promise God something and then to go through with it. 
the thought of a saved person is, well, what can I do for him since he's done so much for me? And the inspired writer phrases it, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? And the believer today is enjoined also to respond to the grace of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. No command, just I beseech you. And in Titus 2.12, teaching us the grace of God has appeared and saved us. What does it do? Demand something? No, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And here is what Micah says, He hath showed thee, O man, what's good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Every normal believer today wants to do something for God. He wants to pledge something to God. The deepest problem is to find something worthy to pledge to God. Ephraim Cyrus put it like this, I pronounce my life wretched because it's unprofitable. And David Brainerd cried out, Oh, that my soul were holy as he is holy. Oh, that it were pure as Christ is pure and perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. You see, these are the sweetest commands in God's book comprising all others. And then the question is, shall I break them? Must I break them? Am I under necessity of it as long as I live in the world? Oh, my soul, woe, woe is me that I'm a sinner. Now, what can a saved sinner offer to God? Well, this chapter answers the question. And a vow, though once made, becomes mandatory. Proverbs 20, verse 25, It's a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, and after vows to make inquiry. You make the inquiry first. And when thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. That's Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and all the way down through 6. There are promissory vows and vows of renunciation. And these are what we're dealing with in this chapter. This is a remarkable chapter, by the way. You remember we have a famous one in the Bible. There's that of the Nazarite. And then the most notable one of all is the vow of Jephthah. You remember Jephthah made a vow. And there's an optional rendering here of verse 31, I think, which seems to forbid the offering of human sacrifice. The last part of the verse in that section back in the book of Judges should read, "...when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer up a burnt offering." And I think that's the way. He didn't mean that he would sacrifice a child of his at all, but he did mean that he would offer up that to the Lord as belonging to the Lord's, but not to sacrifice are to kill that person at all. And I think that's what happened. We are told here that the daughter of Jephthah never married. It came to pass. I'm reading now, by the way, and I think I should turn back to Judges 11, 
39, it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man, that is. She did not marry, and believe me, that was a terrible thing for a Hebrew woman. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year, because she had well, shall we say, taken the veil. She did not marry. She was dedicated wholly unto the Lord. It doesn't mean he offered her as a sacrifice. He would do that or make a burnt offering. It was a rash vow, but he at least kept it. And a great many Christians today are not keeping their vows to God. I believe that God will hold you to a vow. If you do not intend to keep it or you are thinking you're dealing lightly with God, why, you better take a second look at it. I think today that there are many Christians been set aside. I think there are many today that are being judged. And I think that today that there are many that have fallen asleep, as Paul says. Now, listen to Deuteronomy 23. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it, for the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. Now, God's not asking you to do this. This is voluntary. But if you promise God something, be sure you go through with it. Now, you have here a commutation of vows concerning persons, commutation of vows concerning animals, commutation of vows concerning houses, commutation of vows concerning land, and concerning three things which are the Lord's or which are apart from a vow. Now, will you look at these with us for just a few moments here? We have vows now concerning persons and the commutation of them. Verses 1 and 2, "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation." Now, making a singular vow means to single out something of value, particularly precious to the individual. You remember David responded with disgust to something that had been donated to him. And he said, "...neither will I offer unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing." Now, let me say this to you, because I'm no longer a pastor and I haven't any axe to grind in that particular connection, and I wouldn't have if I were a pastor, but I'd be accused of it if I were. And it's this. My friend, if you're in a church and you are attempting to offer God on Sunday morning in the offering plate something that's costing you nothing, may I say this to you? God have mercy on you. Somebody says, you think we ought to give a tenth to the Lord? No. No, we're not under the tithe system today at all. I do not believe in taking up tithes. I've never even mentioned that in my 30 years of ministry. We don't take up tithes, at least I don't, because God doesn't require it. This is where you give a free will offering. And when you're cheap in it, I can tell you one thing, God's going to be cheap with you. There was a very famous man back in Philadelphia years ago, a captain, and I forget his last name. He'd been a captain in an army, but he was no longer that. He was a very successful businessman. And somebody asked him one day what was the secret of his success. 
And he said, well, he says, as the Lord shovels it in, I shovel it out. And the more I shovel it out, the more the Lord shovels it in. I think that's the reason some of us are so poor today. That's the reason some of us have such a hard time financially. It's the way that you deal with God. I believe that with all my heart. And he says here, by thy estimation. It means that which is of current value among the people. It's quite interesting. I (laughs) had a man back before I resigned as pastor when the stock market, by the way, first went down. And he brought in some stock and he offered it. And his comment was this. He says, now that it's going down, I just well give it to the church. God have mercy on that kind of giving today, friends. They ought to be giving it to the Lord when it's going up. It says that it must be something of value. It's something that costs you something. Now, verse 3, "...and thy estimation shall be of the male from twenty years old, even unto sixty years old." Even thy estimation shall be fifty shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. You see, when a person is dedicated by a vow to God, it does not mean that individual must serve in the tabernacle. It means he could bring this animal and he could offer it, you know, and he could be given a receipt in kind. God says, I give you credit according to the value of it and the current value of it. That man that gave stock that had gone down, God didn't give it to him at par value. He gave it to him at the value that it was. Somebody says, you think the Lord really keeps books? I sure think he does. I think he uses a computer. And that computer has a way of just putting down every little detail. And I think it has you and me pretty well numbered, friends. I think that some of us are over in the stingy section and some of us are over in the generous section. God takes note of these things. We need to recognize that. But this is in the area where we exercise our free will. This is where you and I can actually act as God. We can do the thing of our own free will. We can either promise him or not promise him. We can either keep it or not keep it, even after we promise. But if we don't promise it, he doesn't hold us to it. But if we promise it, he'll hold you to it. Now, he goes on, and I'm not going into detail concerning this, But you have here the value that is attached to many things that were chattels, loved ones, these things that you could dedicate to God. And this verse 4 is interesting. It's a female. And this, I think, makes it very clear that this man, Jephthah, didn't offer his daughters a sacrifice. I think that's ridiculous to take that position. This makes it clear that she was given to the Lord in a vow. He made a vow to dedicate her to the Lord. And I'm of the opinion that what actually happened, that she was dedicated to the Lord to serve the Lord in perpetual virginity, and the daughters of the land observed that after that in after years. It was a vow that he kept and he brought the price of a female and offered that to the Lord in the tabernacle. But to say offered her would be contrary to the Mosaic law here, you see. And you remember Hannah brought little Samuel in as a thanksgiving offering to God in payment of her vow. She said, Lord, I told you if you'd give me a son, I'd give him back to you. And she says, here he is, little old five-year-old boy. He's yours. She kept her vow. May I say to you, 
It's wonderful. This is an area where you and I can move today and really reveal whether our Christian experience and our testimony is real or not. What have you vowed to God? Have you ever been to him and presented yourself to him? Have you ever been to God and presented your children to him? Have you presented your grandchildren to him? Have you presented, my friends, your possessions to him? Well, if you have, and don't misunderstand me, he didn't command you to do it. He just said you could do it. But he says one thing, if you do it, it's mandatory that you make good. Now, he goes into detail here. I'm not going to go into detail. The thing that's interesting to me is that if he brought to the Lord a skinny, little old runny animal, why, the value of it was taken, and he was not given but just the fair and equitable price for it. You see, God's going to judge, we're told, the poor in righteousness. And they're going to get a fair deal someday. So far, they haven't. Now, we have here the vows that concern an animal in verses 9 and 10. It says, "...if it be a beast." whereof men bring an offering unto the Lord. All that any man giveth of such unto the Lord shall be holy. He shall not alter it, nor change it, a good for a bad, or a bad for a good. And if he shall at all change beast for beast, then it and the exchange thereof shall be holy. I remember years ago, I was pastor of a little country church, a man took me out to his barn lot, showed me a calf. He says, I've given that calf to the Lord. Well, that little old calf, it looked like it wasn't going to make it, to tell the truth. And I think that's the reason the fellow made the vow. And I think that what he did afterward revealed it. Well, the little animal, believe me, snapped out of it, became a fat little fellow. I tell you, became actually a prized beef and won a blue ribbon. But the man told me, he said, you know, since it's such a fine animal, listen to this now, since it's such a fine animal, I thought I'd better keep it. And I got another good animal over here, and I'm giving it to the Lord. And he took it and sold it and gave the money to the church and felt very comfortable about what he'd done. But it wasn't the animal that won the blue ribbon. It was another one. God says, don't substitute. Now, if you promised to do something for God, then you go through with it. After all, isn't that Ananias and Sapphira in the church today? They promised that they'd give the Lord a certain possession. They didn't do it. Now, they didn't have to do it. And you remember Peter told them that. He said, while it was yours, it was yours. God doesn't demand it of you at all. But you made a vow that you'd give it to God. My friends, what have you promised him that you haven't made good? May I say to you, this thing is real today we're talking about. God holds you to it. If you promised him something and haven't made good... It's still on his books, friends, and you can be sure it's on his books. You're dealing with a God of reality. Now, we have here verses 14 and 15 has to do with houses. When a man shall sanctify his house to be holy unto the Lord, then the priest shall estimate it, whether it be good or bad, as the priest shall estimate it, so shall it stand. And if he that sanctified it will redeem his house, then he shall add the fifth part of the money of thy estimation unto it, and it shall be his. You see, the home of a man is his most sacred material possession, and he could pledge it to the Lord. 
and a Christian home as well as the children of Christians, I think, should be dedicated to God. And the man here could continue to live in his house and begin paying rent to God as the owner, you see. That's what he should have done in a case like this. And I think there are great many folk. I had a man that had me come out and dedicate his house. He said, now, Dr. McGee, this is God's house. And he told me, he said, you can just come out here anytime you want to. Well, I had a house of my own. I didn't need to be running out there. But that's the way he put it. And I want you to know this is God's house. Well, I'll be honest with you. You would think if it's God's house and he's living in it, he ought to be paying God some rent. And you know, he never did pay God any rent. And I think that that's on God's book. Somebody says, you mean to tell me you think it's this literal? Friends, I know it's this literal. God gets right down to the nitty-gritty where you and I are living today, and we prove whether we are genuine in this area of our free will. This is where you and I demonstrate whether we are really genuine or not. This is a tremendous section. Now, there is so much else we could go in, but it all has to do with these things that have to do with a vow. And God insisted that his rights always be observed. And yet, in verses 28 and 29, "...notwithstanding no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast of the field of the possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord." I think here that all of these devoted things, that God wants them absolutely then to pass through his hands in one way or another. Now, I have to come to the conclusion of this chapter and to this book. As you can see, there's so much more that could be said about this chapter and about the book. We have really been in one of the great books of the Bible. I repeat it again. This, my friends, is, I suppose, one of the greatest books that's in the Word of God. And I would say all important for God's people to know its spiritual truths. Verse 34 says, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. The believer today can be thankful for the grace of God in this day so that what we do for God today, we do it voluntarily. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. All based, you see, on that. Oh, today, if we love him, We want to do the thing that will please him. How important these things are.